Let me invite you to take your Bible and join me in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts, chapter 2. You'll be familiar with that particular chapter of the Bible, I suspect. Uh, perhaps the most famous chapter in the book of Acts, and for some, the most famous chapter in the New Testament, for reasons that uh, we'll not deal with today. But you'll recall that the occasion of Acts 2 is that the uh, Holy Spirit falls on the day of Pentecost, immediately following Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and that as a result of that, the apostles begin to preach to all the pilgrims who have gathered in Jerusalem for the great festival, Pentecost. So there are hundreds, even thousands of people, maybe even tens of thousands of people who've come from uh, all over the world, various countries, speaking various languages. In the midst of that, the wisdom of God is that they would all hear the gospel. And so God empowers the apostles with these miraculous gifts of tongues or languages. So if you don't speak Spanish and all of a sudden you start speaking Spanish, that's miracle. If you don't speak Russian and all of a sudden you start speaking Russian, that's a miracle. And uh, so these people from all over the world who uh, had not heard the gospel, now hearing the gospel in their own native tongue. It was startling. It was amazing. It was uh, beyond explanation, and rightly so. It was a miracle. And so as a result of that, the religious leaders reacted negatively, and they looked at those apostles. They knew that they were followers of Christ, and they knew they were giving glory to Christ and so forth, and they began to mock them and said, these guys are not doing anything productive. They're speaking in foreign tongues we don't recognize. They're just drunk. Well, that's one explanation. A better explanation is the truth. And the truth is addressed by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. We're going to read here this morning through verse 36. I invite you to follow along as we read. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, quoting now Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I must say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, the miracle of languages. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Well, this is a wonderful sermon. I have uh, said many times the, the book of Acts is full of sermons. Some would call them speeches. Uh, but because we're in church, we'll call it a sermon. In this case, the apostle Peter is preaching and being an advocate for the truth of God with people who don't understand. He's explaining, if you will, the Bible and the work of God in the person of Christ. And so we want to borrow this morning from his sermon, and I want to just point out in verses 22, 3, and 4, those three verses, three things that he says about this coming of Christ and its implication for our lives. Those three things will, I think, help us to reflect well on what it means this year to celebrate Easter together. What is it indeed that Christians are celebrating? I want you to note this, first of all, in verse 22. He notes the glory of Jesus. We are celebrating the glory of Jesus. Notice how he phrases it. Men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, witnessed to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst. So he points out, first of all, the glory of Christ or the glory of his life, the glory of his work as, a, as one who's come from God. And he references his works, his wonders, and his signs. So I want to reflect with you this morning how the Bible describes this glory. Now, for those of you who are students of the Bible, this is not news to you, but let me just point out the New Testament is made up of three general categories of literature. The first, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the narrative of Jesus' life. That's the record of his life. If you want to find the details of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all written from a different perspective, so they say the same thing, only different. Then there's the book of Acts, which is the history of the work of the Holy Spirit in birthing the early church. The Gospels cover the period of Jesus' birth and death, roughly 30 years. The book of Acts covers the period through the first century, so essentially 70 years, 65, 70 years or so. And then there are the letters or the epistles, so Corinthians and Romans and Galatians and on into the general epistles of Peter and James. And, uh, Hebrews, not technically an epistle, but uh, the, the point, of course, is that there's a, a section called the letters. And in those letters, again, he is dealing with specific problems in specific churches, specific problems with specific individuals, and so forth. But the Gospels for our purposes this morning, will be the most helpful. So I just reflect with you this morning on the glory of Christ is found in the Gospels. 
Now, time doesn't permit for obvious reasons. The book of Matthew has 28 chapters. The book of Mark has 16 chapters. The book of Luke has 26 chapters. And the book of John has 21 chapters. You add those up, you've got 81 chapters of the record of the life of Jesus Christ. And so he tells us here, men of Israel, there is a man attested to you by God by virtue of his works, his wonders, and his miracles. And we have 81 chapters of them. And I've just chosen two. I tried to divide, as it were, the work and the wonders of Jesus into three categories. Admittedly, my three categories are arbitrary, but until you come up with better ones, I like mine. So here they go. The first category, we'll just call it compassion. Is it miraculous that Jesus would be so compassionate? I would say absolutely. In fact, it is among the things, maybe it is the thing that most endears us to God. It is that God is compassionate, that God is merciful, that God loves us, and that he works always for our good. God is kind to sinners. This is not the nature of God's in the, the Greek pantheon or the Roman pantheon or the secular pantheon beyond them. This is not the nature of God's. God's in the ancient world were, were capricious. God's were evil. God's did hurtful things. God's were judgmental. And, and universally so, that gods were angry, and that gods would always work in a vindictive way against their parishioners who would, did not follow them. Contra that, the God of the Bible, who is long-suffering and kind and patient and full of mercy and is compassionate. Consider with me just two chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. I just arbitrarily selected these, chapter 8 and chapter 9 in the Gospel of Matthew. You don't have to turn there. You'll remember these stories. In these two chapters, 10 works of compassion are recorded in the life of Christ. He heals a leper. He heals the servant of a centurion. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He casts out demons for two men. He heals a man who's been paralyzed. He heals the daughter of a ruler who has died and brings her back to life. He heals a woman with an issue of blood. He gives sight to two different blind men. He heals a man possessed by a demon. Just two chapters among the 81 that we could name in the Gospels, Jesus takes care of 10 different individuals, and he shows compassion again and again. The miraculous, the generous, the glorious work of the miracles of Christ are on full display in the scripture. And he, uh, Peter's point in all of this is, you yourselves know this. He's speaking to Jewish leaders in his day, and he's saying, none of this was done in a closet. You know what he's done. You know the kind of life he's lived. There's a second category that I've arbitrarily chosen, and that is his power. What about Jesus' power? Again, the word miracle actually means power. So his works and wonders and signs, these miraculous things. Let's think about his power. Again, the Gospel of Matthew, I've arbitrarily chosen. Chapter 12, he heals a man with a withered hand. 
So a man has a deformed hand, a mangled hand, a damaged hand, or a hand that somehow perhaps is, is damaged in birth even. We don't know. We don't know the details of that, but the man's hand is inoperable. The man's hand cannot be used. The man's hand is withered, and Jesus heals him. No man before him has ever done this. No man since him has ever done this. How do you heal that? You do it with great power. In chapter 14 of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus feeds the 5,000. The Bible makes clear that's just the number count for the number of men, perhaps an equal number of women, and certainly who knows the number of children. Estimates could range as high as 25,000 people. If you ever go to Israel, they'll show you the place where they think this occurred. I assure you, 25,000. If, if 12,000 people can get in an amphitheater in Brandon, I pr promise you 25,000 can get on a hillside in Galilee. God can do all this. He can do this because he is God. God, through Christ, feeds the 5,000. He does so with a boy's lunch. I don't know what you're having for lunch, but it's not going to feed thousands. You need a miracle. After that, in Matthew 14, he walks on the water. You're not going to do that. You're not going to know somebody who does that. He moves across the lake in Matthew 14, and he begins to heal the sick at Gennesaret. And the Bible says that people from all over the countryside brought their sick to him, and he healed every one of them. Every one of them. Doesn't tell us how many just says all of them. And then in Matthew 15, he heals the demon-possessed daughter of a Canaanite woman. A Canaanite. What is the son of Almighty God, the son of David, the Messiah of the Jews, doing helping a Canaanite woman? She's a pagan but she is worthy of his affection. She is, he, he is delighted to serve her and to heal her daughter of demon possession. There is great power. And that's just three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. There's 78 more in the, the Gospels combined. And then a third category I've arbitrarily chosen is this category I've just simply called wisdom. His wisdom is beyond compare. Nobody's ever been as wise as him. Let me just give you a couple of illustrations. Turn to Matthew 13, if you would. Matthew 13. I'll ask you to turn here. I think it will be helpful if you read this along with me. Matthew 13, verse 53. Jesus has uh, turned to parables. He's teaching in parables all across Galilee. And uh, he's decided it's, it's time to go to Nazareth, his hometown. And we pick up the story in Nazareth. And I want you to note that though they don't embrace him, they reject him, in fact. Though they don't embrace him, they nonetheless acknowledge his wisdom. Notice this in verse 53, Matthew 13. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? There's a witness. There's an attestation. There's a recognition. 
an acknowledgement of the wisdom and the mighty works of Christ by the people who are not in his camp, not for him. We know that by their continued reaction. Verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this, rather, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? In other words, Jesus is not an only child. Are not all his sisters with us? This is how we know that Mary had other children. This is how we know that Jesus grew up in a family that would be typical. A family with a single child would be atypical in ancient Israel, and it would be atypical to consider Jesus an only child. We have names here for four brothers and at least two sisters because the word sister is plural. I would suggest even more than that because it says all his sisters. The way I talk, maybe not you, but if there's only two, I always say both his sisters. Maybe difficult to prove, but I like my chances. Is not his mother Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Are not his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus is full of wisdom. Even these who rejected him acknowledged that he was a wise man. There's another reference in Matthew 22. I invite you to turn there quickly. 22 in verse 23. Jesus has come before the Sadducees. You'll recall the Sadducees are a group, if you will, a sect in the middle of Judaism. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So they, they believed that you, were, that you died and you were done. That was it. And uh, I don't know how you get much popularity with that view, but they nonetheless did. And in fact, the priestly tribe, the priestly group was a part of the Sadducees. So they were people not only of of uh, strong theology, there were people of strong influence in the culture. The same day, verse 23 says, the same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now understand, this is not a real circumstance. They're not defining a real circumstance. This is a riddle. What about this situation? So forth. And it's a riddle. So they're offering Jesus a riddle. They don't have any clue to the answer of this question. They just want to embarrass Jesus because they think the question is unanswerable. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you people who think you know the scriptures don't. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of of the dead, but rather of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. He just took the unanswerable riddle and he turned it on its head and exposed the falsehood of the presupposition behind the riddle. They were astonished at his wisdom. I want you to note something as regards the power of the resurrection. He makes a very important point that you should keep in mind even today, maybe especially today on this Easter day. He said, you have not read what was said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What does he mean? Well, if he were the God of the dead, he would have used the past tense in describing his relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died. But God says, I am their God. What is he implying? He's implying they're alive. They're not dead. They're dead, but they're not. They're dead, but they're alive. Their body is dead, but they are very much alive. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fall into the category called living. You don't understand the power of the resurrection. This is the core belief of the Sadducees, that, that, you're, that you die and you're done. And Jesus blew up their core theology, and they were astonished at his teaching. So then he takes on the varsity. The B team couldn't get him, so he takes on the varsity, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, it's always a lawyer, asked him the question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor and yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law of the prophets. Of course, that's the right answer. That's Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Love God, love your neighbor. These two commandments comprise the core of all that God would have for us to understand. This is the nature of the Ten Commandments. The first have to do with your vertical relationship with loving God. The last have to do with your horizontal relationship in loving one another. This is the core of what it means to be a follower of God. Jesus answers correctly. So, verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, he is the son of David, the Christ, the Messiah. When he comes, he'll be the son of David. He said to them, well, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Word got around. He's smarter than you. Don't embarrass yourself. Now, how smart is Jesus? Well, 
Well, I suspect you can read that passage again and again and again. And you're going to read right over the point. I want to make sure you see the point. Jesus' question in verse 45 is, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? It is a universal truth that fathers don't call their sons Lord. Anybody here want to volunteer? That's, that's the pet name you have for your son? Oh, Lord, my son. No, my dad had four sons. He called us a lot of things. <laughs> Lord was never one of them. I suspect if my dad had a thousand lifetimes, he would have never called us Lord. God took care of that for me. He didn't give me any sons, but I've never called my girls Lord either. So if the Messiah is the son of David, how is it that David calls him Lord? Well, where does David call him Lord? Well, there it is, verse 44 a citation from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. I've often said, you know, don't chase a rabbit unless it's got meat on its bones. Don't chase any skinny rabbits. Just chase the fat ones. So we have to chase this one. David is the author of Psalm 110. And the very first verse, he says, the Lord says to my Lord. So there's two Lords in Psalm 110. And David is neither of them. David is neither of the Lords in Psalm 110. David is the author telling about the Lord who's talking to the Lord. So in In understanding Psalm 110, you have to understand that David is talking about God having a conversation with his son, Jesus Christ. So David says, the Lord, God, said to my Lord, his son, which in the lineage of David is going to be his son. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. He said, you ask me a question. I'm going to ask you a question. When David's talking about his, the Messiah, is the Messiah his son or is the Messiah his Lord? Well, the answer to that is yes. Jesus is both Lord and the son of David. He is the God-man. We know that to be the case, but they don't understand that. These are the premier religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, the ones responsible for trumping up the the charges against Jesus that he be crucified. And Jesus asked this question and he uses Psalm 110. Because you see, the wisdom of the Bible is not for the uninitiated. It's not just simply for us to understand this is some sort of silly little superficial story and that there's not really much going on and it's just like every other story. Friend, it's not. This is the wisdom of Almighty God. And Jesus came and he did wonders and miracles. And he did all kinds of marvelous things. And the reason he did these things is because he is God. He is the Son of God. He has come to declare the glory of God. And he is glorious in his wisdom. He knows what he's doing. Now here's where the rabbit comes in. Many of you know that 
when the pandemic started a year ago, we came to uh, this week a year ago on Facebook. I started doing a little devotional on the walk to the cross, if you will, from Palm Sunday to Easter, did a little devotional. Then I decided that went well. A lot of folks liked it, so I decided to keep going. I, I did the miracles of John in the Gospel of John, and, but there are only seven of those, so that didn't take long. And uh, then I said, what am I going to do now? So I decided I would do the Psalms. So I started with Psalm 1, Psalm 2, and so forth, and we're just skipping over and taking selective Psalms. So on Facebook, every Wednesday, I do this thing called the Word on Wednesday, and I'm doing the Psalms. Now, let me say this. If you're not on Facebook, don't get on Facebook. All right? Because somebody who's brand new on Facebook, you, you, everybody knows you're brand new on Facebook. They just know. Because you just got married, right? You just put on there. For those of you on Facebook, you're in a relationship. Well, you're 70 years old. Well, you just started a relationship. Don't, don't get on Facebook. But if you're, if you're on Facebook, stop telling us what you had for lunch. That's the first thing I'd say. We don't care about what you had for lunch. Secondly, uh, if, if you've not friended me, friend me. I, I won't follow you. I, I won't even know you. I won't even know you. you can, but you can send me messages, and you can watch my Word on Wednesday. I don't post anything except Jesus stuff. So if you want to know more about Jesus, you can follow me on Facebook. That's the end of the commercial. But the point is, right now I'm in Psalm 97, but I am busting a gut to get to Psalm 110. It's all I can do to keep from getting to Psalm 110. Let me tell you why. If I were to ask you, what's the most popular Psalm today? We took a poll of this crowd. You know what the answer would be? Sure you do. 23rd Psalm. Why? Well, first of all, it's only six verses. Nobody ever votes for Psalm 119 got 190 or so verses. Nobody ever votes for 119. They always vote for the little shorties. Secondly, it's about sheep. Man, if you don't like sheep, you're, you're not a person, right? They're cute. They're soft. They don't have any thing that they, there's no horns. There's no claws. They can't do anything to you except run you over and that won't hurt for too long. Take it from a guy who chased sheep when I was a ju juvenile. Uh, that being said, it's about sheep, and who, who doesn't love that? So it's a comforting psalm, and I'm not mocking it in any way. But here's the point. Psalm 23 is not quoted in the New Testament. Let me say, that doesn't negate psalm, one, uh, psalm 23 at all. It just simply says that if you're going to understand the Bible, you're going to have to broaden your understanding of the psalms. So you might say, well, what psalm should I start with? Well, why don't we start with the one that's most quoted in the New Testament? Psalm 110. The word on Wednesday, when I get to Psalm 110, it's going to have to be broken into two parts. I got a lot to say. It starts right here. Matthew 22, 44. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I get finished. You see, Jesus came to earth and he accomplished 
that which the Lord sent him to accomplish. But he's not finished. He said to the Lord, Jesus, I want you to come home, return to glory, and sit at my right hand until I'm done, until it's time, until it's over. And when I put all of your enemies to rest, they will become the footstool that you'll put your dirty feet on. Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. You see, Psalm 110 is a picture of conquest. It's a picture of power. It's a picture of victory. It's a picture of the true varsity coming to put an end to these wannabe varsity players. So the wisdom of God manifested in the work of Jesus Christ is unparalleled. There is nothing like it. There is no story. There is no experience. There is no witness. There is nothing in the history of humanity to compare with what God did when he sent his one and only son to be the savior. The wisdom of this plan is unparalleled. Well, let me move quickly. Beyond the glory of Jesus, go back to Acts chapter 2. He deals with the necessity of Jesus' death. Notice what he says in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Some would say that Jesus' death is a miscalculation. Some would say that Jesus overplayed his hand. Jesus if you will, barked up the wrong tree that he picked a fight with people he couldn't defeat. Some would say that this is an overreach by Jesus. But the Bible would argue against such crazy thinking. Instead, notice in verse 23, Jesus is delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him and killed him. But this is all part of the plan. Let me show you. This is the nature of the apostles' preaching. Turn to the next chapter, Acts chapter 3, verse 17. And you see this again and again. Here Peter is speaking uh, in the temple, on the temple mount. And he says, now brothers, verse 17, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer he thus fulfilled. In other words, this is all part of the plan. Repent, therefore, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, those who came after him, also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with his, your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first 
to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. In other words, there is nothing accidental about the work of Christ. There is nothing incidental about the work of Christ. There is, Jesus is not off script. Jesus is not miscalculating anything. He is completing the predetermined plan of God. Look at chapter 4, verse 23. Peter and John have been arrested. Now they've been released. And they come and they gather with their friends to celebrate. Here's what they say, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders said. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And they said, Sovereign God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Psalm 2 now, the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 2. Who by the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus did not overplay his hand. Jesus is following the plan. Jesus is writing the plan. Jesus is doing the plan. It's the plan from ages past. It is God's plan. And it is the plan that most benefits us. Many of you know that I'm preaching through Isaiah on Sunday mornings. We'll be back in Isaiah next week. Hear these words from Isaiah 53, which we won't be in next week, but we will be soon enough. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Does that sound like a plan that just got conjured up and then blew up in the face of Jesus? No. David wrote Psalm 2 a thousand years before Christ. Isaiah wrote chapter 53 some 750 years before Christ. This has been the plan. It is the plan. And it's always going to be the plan. The necessity of Jesus' death. Hear me, friend. If someone doesn't die for your sins, you are still in your sins. And there's no one in this room who can die for your sins. Because everyone in this room has their own sins. So how can somebody with damaged goods solve your problem of damaged goods? How can someone with dirty money provide for your dirty problem? It can't be done. You have to have someone who is not stained. And God, from ages past, planned it, executed it, and brought his son 
into the midst of a world that would reject him. But not everyone rejected him. I trust you're here today. And you don't reject him, you embrace him. Embrace the one who was crucified for you. His sin didn't exist. He died because your sins exist. Glory to God. Peter makes a third point quickly, and that is verse 24, Acts chapter 2. The power of the resurrection. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter, in Acts 2, quotes Psalm 16. He uses David's argument. Notice how he explains David's argument, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, David's a great man, right? We all agree with that? Yes, we do it. He's, he's speaking to the Jewish leaders, they all revere David and so forth. David is great. He's on the pantheon of wonderful, great men, glorious men, so forth. He's the great king of Israel, expanded the borders, and the great beloved of God and so forth. He's the great king. Well, I want to tell you something. David died, and we have his tomb. In other words, David went the way of every other man. As great as David was, he's just a man. As great as David was, he's just like me, just like you, just like our father's. As great as David was, he wasn't God. Turns out he died, and we still have his tomb. But verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, that's 2 Samuel 7, by the way, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. In other words, Psalm 16 is not about the resurrection of David. It is about the resurrection of Christ. Notice what he says Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. What happened to Christ? Did his bones decay? Is there corruption in the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ? No, Psalm 16 is about Christ. It is about the one who, though dead, the Lord did not leave him dead. Notice again his phrase, verse 24, it was not possible for death to hold him. Why was it not possible? Because Psalm 16 says God promised him it would not be possible. God promised him, if you will do this, follow me, obey me, submit to this, you will not see corruption. You will be exalted. I will raise you from the dead. That's precisely what happens. We celebrate today because God is not a liar and because God is full of generosity to us through his son. And the resurrection is proof positive that God is doing something. He's stirring among us. And if Jesus is raised and you look to Jesus, then you too will be raised. 
But if Jesus is raised and you ignore Jesus, then friend, you won't be raised unto life. You'll be raised unto judgment and you'll be condemned to hell forever. Thanks be to God, Jesus spares us from hell and spares us from the condemnation that's justly ours. And he does so by the power, as the Hebrews call it, of an indestructible life. You can kill him, but he's coming back. <laughs> and today he is anything but dead. And today he sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And today we can say with Peter, who said with David, who said with the patriarchs who went long before him, the Lord will rescue his anointed. And he will rescue those who love his anointed. I urge you today to consider your relationship to Christ and to not take this for granted. God is at work and doing marvelous things today and every day. I hope you'll follow Christ. Put Christ in the crosshairs of all you do and make him Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this word as we reflect on Peter's sermon. We reflect on the power of an indestructible life. We thank you, Father, for your mercies in Christ and through Christ for us. We are blessed indeed how we glory in Christ and glory in the work you've accomplished through Christ. Draw us to Christ now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.